I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrew, and I still have a rich, full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Hello and welcome to episode 14 of Talk and Golf History, the podcast that brings the past into the present in the hope of helping, helping make a worthwhile contribution to the future. My name's Rod Murray and there's a palpable sense of excitement in the air as we sit down to record the show today. Yes, the start of the 148th Open Championship is now less than a week away. Royal Port Rush in Northern Ireland will play host for just the second time. And while the feats of Tiger Woods, Rory McIlroy and co will be scrutinised in real time as only the digital age can do, the truth is that it's the past, not the present, which makes this event so special. Today, we'll meet one of the game's most eminent and respected historians when former World Golf Hall of Fame official historian Dr Tony Parker joins us to talk all things open history. But first, my co-host for the day and a little bit of housekeeping, let's start by saying a big hello to the surgically repaired head of the Society of Golf Historians, Connor Lewis. Connor, there was some kidney stone you produced the other day. You must be part cyborg now after having a piece that large removed from your personage, and I understand you're an eight and a half out of ten on the pain scale, so this will be an interesting recording to say the least. Yeah, if I start crying, it's going to be out of excitement. That's what we're going to tell people. <laughs> um, I think that's about right. It was about, you know, the funny thing is, so uh, not to discuss people, but I had a uh, a stone in my kid left kidney that was about an inch in diameter, and it needed to be surgically removed. We did that on Monday. And anybody who's had a kidney stone will tell you one of the worst things ever thereafter is taking the stent out of you. Okay, that's I won't enough. go into the details. Yeah, no, that's not going yeah I won't go into the details other than to say I was under the impression that I'd be 100% today, and my pain may actually exceed post-surgery right now. So I've got two ibuprofen. I refuse to take the oxycodone because I'd be drooling on this podcast. And once we get into the details with Dr. Tony Parker, I'm probably going to drool anyway. Um but I got a heating pad. I'm in, you know, sweatpants. I am lazy today. I am oh, basically trying to get as comfortable as I can with 8.5 scale pain. Indeed. Now, distract yourself from all of that by telling the listeners where they can find us on Twitter and Facebook, etc., and how they can get in touch, because we do like to hear from the listeners. We've only got the one listener question today. Uh, we like to have more generally, but uh, tell people how they can get in touch. Yeah, and on the on the listener questions, first of all, thank you for asking them, and I'm gonna, I'll take the blame on that one. I think that went out a little late, the request for it. Mm-hmm. I'd like to give everybody at least a week, uh, but you can reach us at at Rod underscore Mori on Twitter and at S Historians on Twitter for myself. Uh, we have, um, well, my email address is the Society of Golf Historians at gmail.com, or you can reach us on the Facebook page, which is the Society of Golf Historians. Mm-hmm. And you can join up the group there and always lots of stuff ticking over, interesting stuff ticking over on the Facebook. Just a reminder, if you do have questions for us, and you can ask them anytime, doesn't matter whether it's a particular guest or anything, feel free to ask questions anytime. Use the hashtag people, hashtag TG History. If you do that, we can find the questions and then we can guarantee so that true. they get asked. And if we if you don't do that, it makes it hard to find them and then your question might not get asked and then might not get answered. What we might do in the future, if people start posting questions without the hashtag, what we might do, Connor, is ask the questions on the show but not answer them. 
Hey, that'll, that'll, oh, that'll sort boy, them out, won't it? Hey, yeah, that's oh. right. That's oh. right. If you'd use the hashtag. It'd be like, like one of the greatest right. questions of all time. Exactly. And we'll just nothing. That's just right. Here's radio silence. Terrific question. Thanks for asking it. We really appreciate it. Now on to the next thing. Time to get on with <laughs> right. today's episode. And what an honor and frankly a privilege it is to welcome today's guest, Dr. Tony Parker. As I mentioned in the introduction, Tony's the former historian to the World Golf Hall of Fame, but that doesn't begin to touch his resume. Prior to joining that organization in 2014, he spent 21 years living and working in St Andrews. He's universally acknowledged as one of the game's foremost historians, and any attempt I could make to do his resume justice would only come up short. So instead of that, let's just hear direct from the man himself. Dr Tony Parker, welcome. A really big and genuine thank you for taking some time to chat today. This is going to be fantastic. It's going to be fun. Yeah, I'm glad to be here, and uh, uh, I always love to talk about the history of the game. Well, there's the first question. Why? What about history? What grabbed you? When did history grab you when did golf history grab you and why what do you think oh, it is? wow that goes back a long ways well i've always been a voracious reader and uh in, in a former life i've, I've been a, a number of things but uh, i went back to university uh, just to get the phd just because i wanted to not for any job related purpose or anything and st andrews had to be the place to get that because i am a uh, avid golfer and why not play in the place where it all began? Mm-hmm. And, of course, you can't live 21 years in St. Andrews and not be totally oh, immersed in the, in the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the whole town is the game. The old it? course is my home course, so let's just put it that way. Yeah, fantastic. Is it true that I read a piece this morning that you told your wife you'd be there for three years? <laughs> yeah, I, told, I, I told her if she'd marry me, I'd take her on an adventure. <laughs> We'd be in yeah. St. Andrews for, for three years. Well, well, and uh, 21 years later, we were still there. You delivered on that. Uh, Lucky she didn't leave after three and just leave you there. <laughs> <laughs> no, she fell in love with the place as well. I can so that's, uh, that's a good part. Just on a, on a rabbit hole. Is she, a go- is she a golfer, she a golfer too? Yeah. She is a, a, a member of a golf club in St. Andrews, and she does play, but she hasn't had a chance to play over here. Now, she does work for the PGA Tour, so I guess golf is, is definitely our life. Uh-huh, indeed. Oh, I didn't know that. For those who don't yeah. know, Tony... Just explain a little bit about the appeal, the attraction, and the. There's a vibe about St Andrews in there. If, if people haven't been oh, gosh. there, it's a, it's an extraordinary yeah. place. And if you're a golfer, it really is a spiritual journey to go there. It, it is a magical place. I remember several years ago, even before I got into the, the golf history, I was asked by Nordic Nordic uh, Nordic Television to do a, a, a little piece about golf in St Andrews. And they did a wonderful piece, uh, very atmospheric and showing the old course and things. But it is. It's a special place. When you stand on the first tee of the old course, the weight of the history mm-hmm. sits and settles upon your shoulders. You know that you are now part of the history of the game, of where it all began and where it's going. Uh, yeah. Everywhere you turn in St. Andrews, you you see another part of history. Old Tom Morris, you know, Alan Robertson was there, young Tommy Morris. Uh, in the cemetery, you see the, the gravestones of Alan Robertson. And and thanks to Roger McStravick, now Jamie Anderson. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a, a, a just history surrounds everything you do there. And it uh, it's not oppressive. It's actually quite liberating because mm. you feel like, I am part of this. It's I joyous, isn't it? Yeah, it's a, it's a very it welcoming is. and it's inclusive great. sort of issue. And that standing on that first tee, it's a real physical reaction, isn't it, for most of you? You can feel it. Yeah. You can feel your skin <laughs> well, tingles and things happen. You can feel it. It's no question about it. Well, I, I'll tell you, I've played golf with people from everywhere in the world on the old course. I've played it a little over a thousand times. And uh, uh, I remember I've, I've seen 
low handicap golfers dribbled it off the tee. Um, <laughs> I've seen them hit it out of bounds. I think my, my favorite, and I have to tell this story if you don't mind, uh, several, several years ago, there was a, a friend of a friend who came over from the Netherlands. And we're standing on the first tee, and uh, he said, and of course, you know how wide it is, mm -hmm. the first and the 18th. Uh, and he said, turned around, and he said, how could anyone miss this fairway? And I had to say it. I said, well, considering every great golfer who has ever lived has stood, oh, right where you're standing. And uh, oh, considering, oh. The, considering the old boys in the uh, R&A are sitting there with their whiskeys and cigars, and they're uh, making comment about, oh, your swing. <laughs> and uh, not to mention the 200 visitors to St. Andrews who came in on the buses were standing around watching. Oh, they're watching you. Yeah. Not only did he not hit the fairway, he hit the beach on the fly, <laughs> off, oh, which is about, oh. a, about 150 yards to the right, for those of you who don't yeah, know. Yeah, it's nowhere in there. Yeah. Is, uh, Whoa. And, he, and he turned around and said, I understand. I understand that. That's cool. And, <laughs> and you, I think that says it all. And you, of course, said uh, one up to Parker. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, that's Let's great. That's right. Oh, that's brilliant. Let's talk about some history. Connor, now I know you've got a bit of a timetable or a bit of a series of questions that you wanted to lead Tony to. So I'm going to sit back and uh, let the two of you no, no, that's all right. go at it. And I'm sure I'll jump in with various questions as we go along. But I'm, I'm keen to hear what we want to grill Tony about today. Uh, there won't be a gorilla. Seat, seat. <laughs> I, I will say this. Uh, the last time I was at St. Andrews, I played hickory shafted clubs. It was an exact duplicate set of Tom Stewart RTJs that oh, Bomb Jones used to win the, the Open. And yeah. um, it even had the Hagen Concave. And when I got on that first tee, I was wearing knickers, sweater, you know, the newsboy cap, taking sure. some practice swings. And I, I shouldn't have done it. I looked behind me. And all of a sudden, I would say it felt like 50, but it was probably like 15 members of the RNA came out on the deck to watch me. And oh, yeah. I have never felt so nervous. Now, I nuked one down the middle. Thank you. Hey, My dad did put one out on the beach, but it was probably the, <laughs> the weirdest, best shot because, again, you should hit the fairway, right? Yeah. You really should hit the fairway. Oh, yeah. But under the, that pressure with hickories, because I, I guess my thought was, and I had just started playing hickories, if I whiff one or hit one like 10 yards, Everyone's going to say, why is that guy playing those old clubs? <laughs> get, get yourself a titanium so driver. Worse. That's right. Yes. Oh, it's so bad. Dear um, Just aim, so anyway, aim at the bush. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, Tony, I thought we'd start off a little bit about you, and then oh, okay. we'd move into uh, the Open Championship. Sure. Because I just think your background is fascinating. Um, I just love it, and I think people would want to know a little bit more about it, too. So I thought we'd start off right off the bat. Maybe walk our audience through how you became the curator for St. Andrews University Golf Collections, because I can't even imagine how someone gets that honor, specifically as an American. Well, it's kind of interesting because I was actually the very first curator of golf collections in 600 years at the university. Oh. Uh, yeah, which is kind of cool. Now, the way it came yeah. about, I, I uh, uh, had written a book for an individual uh on the relationship between Mount Melville Estate, the people who live there, and its relationship to the history of the game of golf. And, of course, I use the archives quite a lot. Uh, also, I was there for my PhD, as, as I've mentioned before. Uh, but they had just taken in a, a photographic golf collection of some 250,000 images uh, from 1978 to 1994 by uh, the photographer who, who took the pictures 
that are hanging on my wall at the moment, uh, Lawrence Levy. And they needed someone to kind of to uh, help them archive those and, and, and uh, uh, catalog them. And so I came in, and they showed me a few pictures and uh, asked me if I would help. And, and they handed me one photograph that said, uh, can you tell us, who, A, who's here, who this is, and, and yeah. how would you catch it? And it was a picture of uh, a Paul Azinger and a young lad by the name of Jamie Hutton and um, uh, Greg Norman. And I said, I would, I would entitle that uh, When Two Heroes Met. And they said, what do you mean? And I said, well, Paul Azinger and Jamie Hutton are cancer survivors. And it was through the Make-A-Wish Foundation that he came. And, and, and so anyway, uh, and they had said, well, nobody knew who Paul Azinger was. And I said, that is a shame. Yeah, so, uh, so they finally got back in touch and asked me. And I had already started a consulting business. Uh, so I came in and... Uh, I was in post about, oh, I don't know, maybe a month, six weeks, something like that. And I asked the director of the uh, archives, golf has been here 600 years. The university is celebrating its 600th anniversary. What do we have? And you'll love what he said. He said, we don't know. We're the first oh. golfy guy. You're the first golfy guy ever to serve on the, on the, uh, the staff here. Uh, so we did a survey. And you would not believe what we found. I mean, this until is my next question. So just yeah, keep until, going. <laughs> yeah, until until 1832, uh, the University of St Andrews was a royal depository. So everything published in in the UK, they had a copy of. Uh, they also had a copy of the very first time the word golf was ever in print. Of course, that came from the 1457 a proclamation banning the game. Right. The ban. They had right. the they had the original 1552 charter by Archbishop uh, Hamilton, even the people of St. Andrews, the right to play golf in perpetuity on the links. Wow. Uh, wow. Yeah. They had, uh, well, now about 800,000 images. Of course, you know, photography started in 1839. The first golf photography, 1848, of a golfer on the old course at St. Andrews. A paper negative, by the way. They've got it. Uh, there. Oh. It's all there. Uh, government records, uh, newspaper records, journals, diaries, uh, the women's golf, they have their scrapbooks. The, the RNA, um, the uh, British Golf Museum have artifacts, but we have all the knowledge. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, I, I invited Peter Dawson, who was the secretary of the RNA, over one day. And I was just showing him just a few of the items that we found. And he started yeah. laughing. And uh, he, he, I said, what is it, Peter? He said, well, I thought the RNA had the greatest collection in the world. I was wrong. Mm. The treasure house is across the road at the university. Oh. Uh, was and this? it is. This was uh, 2000, oh gosh, I don't know, 2010, 11, 12, somewhere I mean, there. so it's basically yesterday in the history of time, right? Exactly. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, so it's uh, basically, is it the, it's the Library of Alexandria. For golf, <laughs> for golf, it is. I'll agree right? with that. Right? Yeah, it really is. Yeah. Um, I, mean, yeah. I mean, one of the one, one of the key things I found, which is really really cool, two things actually. One, the, I had acquired uh, thirty six volumes of this fellow's journal, uh, his golfing journal, and then he put his scorecards and he put photographs and postcards. And there's a photograph of the seventeenth tee box on the old course in nineteen seventeen, and there were sheep grazing at the end of the tee box. 
Oh, love it. Uh, yeah. So I called the, the head greenkeeper uh, and I asked him, I said, when, when was the last time, you know, sheep grazed on the old course? And he said, gosh, that would have been 1860s before the advent of uh, uh, lawnmowers and Siths. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, well, would you surpri- be surprised if I showed you a photograph of sheep grazing in 1917? And, of course, he, he responded to that. Well, there was a war going on, so the machinery was being used for other things. Um, oh, sure. Which is true. But one, yeah. of the, one, one of my favorite photographs I found during the Crimean War, they actually used the fairways of the 14th fairway uh, to practice cannon firing. Uh, military uh, uh, practice on the old course in St. Andrews. I did not uh, know that. That That is it's pretty cool. Uh, and, of course, I think probably one thing that might shake up some folks, uh, we have the records. You know, everybody talks about the Swilkin Bridge being 700 years old. Yeah. And, and, and the rudiments of that bridge is correct. It is 700 years old. But we have in the archives... Uh, I've got the receipts of when they rebuilt the bridge in 1832, uh, actually moved it from where it was originally down to where it is now. And uh, one thing originally? I like, you know where the golfer's bridge is on, is on the right? Yes, the, I do. Yeah. The, yeah. That's where it originally was. Wow. Yeah. And was there wow. another bridge? Was there another bridge off the back of the set? That would be an extraordinarily long way to walk, wouldn't it, from the 7-8th green over to that one that's on the other side? Well, it's in 32. No, no, not really. No. Okay. Actually, now, remember, they played the course the other way around. Of course, uh, yeah. Yeah, and they yeah, played the yeah, yeah, okay, right. Wow. Exactly, yeah. But what, one thing I really liked about it was part of the payment for these Masons was uh, a pint of ale a day. Hmm. Huh. Nice. And I thought, that's the way to get it. paid. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And hope your and bridge stays up after they're finished. Uh, Oh, well, obviously it does. It's still still standing. Have the the pint of ale at the end of the day, not the beginning. That's the key to that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Quick question, Tony. Do we know why there'd never been a curator for what's turned out to be an unbelievable collection? Is there any indication as to how this stuff... So, what, they were just accruing it in rooms and nobody was cataloguing or sorting out the importance of one item from the next? This is just extraordinary, isn't it? How does that happen for that long? Well, if you look at the the archives at St. Andrews, again, 600 years, they've got, you know, original uh, Galileo, uh, and they have all the philosophers, and they have, you know, I mean, uh, all the greats throughout history in in mathematics and philosophy and art, you know, those those are in the the archives. And so golf kind of took a, a secondary thing, but it's, oddly enough, it's because of academics and, of course, the, the, the church that uh, golf really took off in St. Andrews. Tease that out for me. That's it, right. The storm is here. Uh, uh, okay, well, um, you've got academics. Of course, the university started actually 1412. Um, and uh, actually 1410 was when classes began, but it got its charter in 1412. Uh, and the academics who came, who just happened to be priests, <laughs> most of them, uh, were also ones who took up the game of golf. And so you've got the Ecclesiastical Center of Scotland, which was St. Andrews at the time. Uh, in their leisure time, they were out playing golf. That's why you got the charter from uh, Archbishop Hamilton 
1552 because uh, even though it's common land, they kind of ruled the roost, as it were. Mm. Uh, so you've got academics that are kind of, well, St. Andrews University and golf have always been intertwined from day one. Yeah. Well, it's a, when you go to St. Andrews, one of the things you realize is it really is a university town almost first. We as golfers right. only yeah. think of it as golf, but when you get there, it becomes pretty obvious that it's at least as important as a university town uh, and, and likely much more so uh, to Scotland. Yeah, well, that's the whole reason I went, yeah. you know, ac- academics and yeah. golf, and that's, for me, that was, it was heaven. Yeah, indeed. Sorry, <laughs> Connor, I've, I've jumped in there and taken us yeah, down some no, rabbit holes. fine. I, I just keep thinking, I've, I've been kind of daydreaming here, maybe it's the pain, but um, I, what I, all I'm thinking about is here's Tony Parker just going through their archives, seeing things that haven't been seen for hundreds of years. That's right. And I, so I, I guess my question is, is there anything from that experience that kind of blew your mind? Is there anything that you were like, oh, my, I am the luckiest person on the face of the planet. Who knew this existed? Like, are, are there maybe one or two items that just took your breath away? Uh, well, like I say, seeing the original charter from 1552 was, was yeah. pretty impressive uh i mean it's with on vellum with wax seals and all that and it's it's, it's stored very nicely uh but that to, to have that in my hands you know you're looking at something that's 500 years old or 400 years old oh uh, so that's unreal. impressive yeah exactly and then of course to find the stuff on the swilkin bridge was kind of cool because not everybody knows that uh, did you and, know it also, beforehand Oh no, no! I don't. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I just that saw was new. something. Yeah, yeah, Matt Adams had uh, something uh, the other day uh, on uh, on Twitter. I think it was talking about Swilkin Bridge, uh, seven hundred years old. And I'm sitting there saying, oh, but I know stuff you don't know." I don't. I don't want to correct you now, but uh, yeah, yeah, that's not exactly correct, you know. Yeah. Um, but uh, but stuff like that, you know, I have to sometimes bite my tongue when when a lot of things come out and say, well, actually, I've read the primary source material on this, and it's not exactly what it says, but okay. You right. Know. So I've heard a rumor, and I, I, it's probably true, but I've heard that Alan, like one of my favorite golfers of all time, Alan Robertson, oh, that I his club, Robertson, yeah. are, are his clubs in that collection or they're a not, club? Not in, they're not in the university's collection. Now, okay. now there are there are clubs in, uh, of course, the RNA. Uh, yes, now, I, I will, yes. Yeah. Now, I will tell you, at, uh, at the World Golf Hall of Fame, we do have Tom Morris's club that he used to hit that first shot at the Open in 1860. And, we also, and we also have uh, young Tom Morris's putter that he used in 1868 uh, when he won his first wow. Open. Uh, what what a lot of people don't know is is that year yeah. uh, he, he he used two putters actually, uh, one that had an iron head on rough greens, and then the one that we have, which is a, a persimmon head that he used on smoother greens, which is kind of cool. Kind of Phil Mickelson. Just out of curiosity, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just out of curiosity, um, who was the maker of Tom Morris's driver and the two putters? Do you know? Uh, do, you, do you remember? I think it's Hugh Phelps, isn't it? Yeah, I would think Hugh Phelps for Tom Morris, <laughs> but then I was thinking maybe it wouldn't be for Tommy, right? Because yeah. Phil passed away, it might be a Forgan, but I, I'm just curious. Right. Or is it a Tom Morris? Right. Yeah. Well, I think Tom Morris made uh, uh, the putter for young Tommy. Uh, yeah. But I know okay. old Tom 
used others. And actually, Alan Robinson didn't use his own clubs either. Uh, yeah, no. He was a huge fan Phil. of Hugh Phil. Yeah, That's Phil exactly right, yeah. That's right. Stradivarius, yes. <laughs> That's right, exactly. Well, let's, let's transition here before we get into the Open. Uh, so um, I guess the first question is, did you directly tra- uh, directly move into the historian role of the World Golf Hall of Fame? And then maybe tell us a little bit about your experience there and maybe collections you had, ran into, you know, Ooh. collected. Yeah, uh, well, I was, I was contacted by the World Golf Hall of Fame, and they were starting a new phase to become the uh, go-to place if you want to know the history of the game of golf. And, uh, you know, like if you want to know anything about baseball, you go to Cooperstown. Absolutely. And so if, you, yeah, so if you want to know anything about the game of golf or the history of the game of golf, then the place you should go would be the World Golf Hall of Fame. And so uh, uh, they invited me over and made an offer that I couldn't refuse. My wife and I never thought we'd leave St. Andrews. Uh, but we, we made the transition, and, uh, and it, it was a good move. It certainly was. Uh, now, as to what we have in the collection, it would, it would blow your mind to see what is not on display. <laughs> uh, I bet, yeah. How about maybe some I, I, of your favorites? Uh, well, I'll tell you, one time I had a, a journalist in and I did take him, you know, kind of behind the scenes and we were standing there talking and he, he looked over on a shelf behind, next to us and he said, Oh, you guys have golf shoes and everything. I said, yeah, quite a bit. And he picked up the golf shoe and said, well, whose is this? And I said, well, turn it over. And he turned it over and, and I said, count the cleats. And he started counting. Oh, and he went, no. Oh my know. God. Yeah. Are these Ben Hogan's shoes? I said, yes, they are. You might want to put that back on the shelf now. <laughs> wow. Uh, wow. So, uh, I mean, golf balls, uh, clubs. Like I say, I think probably my one of my favorites is, is uh, the putter, uh, young Tom Morris's putter. I like that. Oh, um, oh gosh. Uh, I mean, there's unusual things. Um, for me to pick a favorite would be extremely difficult to do. Yeah, I like, think. Uh, yeah. 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 You know, we got, we have Charlie Sifford's players card that he got in uh, 1959, 1960, before it was uh, approved to let African Americans be a member of the PGA of America, and so they yeah. gave him an approved tournaments players card, uh, and then they did away with that clause in 1961. But we have that original. Um, wow. Yeah. So I mean, there's wow. just thing after thing. We have seven. Well, I mean, I uh, I could go all day. Just on some of the items that we've got, uh, yeah, that would just that would just blow your mind. That's amazing. So let me ask you this: So, what about golf's history excites you? And do you have a specific era or specialty within golf history that you know kind of pulls on your heartstrings more than another? Uh, well, I'm primarily a, a big fan of pre-World War II, uh, really from you know from earliest times up to. Uh, World War II, although I'm a big Ben Hogan guy. I love Ben Hogan. Uh, as if you were in my office, you would, you would definitely see the, <laughs> the reality of that. Um, love that. But uh, Bobby Jones, uh, I, I was really privileged. I had a young lady come through the museum a while back, and she was carrying two scrapbooks. And at the end of the tour, I asked her, I said, uh, you know, what do you have there? And which is part of the job that I had that I loved more than any was was what people would just bring by out of the blue. Not the absolutely those just a minute. Yeah. But uh, I said, what do you have? And she said, well, my great uncle 
was Bobby Jones' caddy. And uh, these are his scrapbooks. A couple of them. My great aunt has a trunk full of uh, his scrapbooks. And I look through, oh, wow. and there are photographs I've never seen before. There are stories there I have never seen before. And I said, oh, my gosh, uh, that we need to write a book. And so I'm trying to negotiate with the family now to, to do just that. Uh, and you're going to write the book? I'm hoping that's, that's one of, now oh, that I've got brilliant. time to do that, uh, I'm hoping to get into that. Uh, but there are, uh, oh gosh, I had a lady one day just drop by the office. Her mother had been a player back in the 40s and 50s. She had passed away. And she said, my mom had a little brownie instamatic camera and would take pictures, not so much of the tournaments, but all around the tournament. We don't know who any of these people are. Uh, so if you'd like to have these pictures, we'd like to just give them to you. And I opened it, wow. and the very first picture I saw was Babe Saharius, Louise Suggs, and Patty Berg. Oh, wow. uh, Patting oh. on the green and just having fun. So I started flipping through, and I said, oh, my gosh. These have, are never-before-seen photographs of the greats of the game, and they are just fun stuff. That kind of stuff happened all the time. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I can I, tell you a story. I imagine story. If, if we tally all the things that you saw for the first time, uh, it would exceed just about everybody's else by about 500 times or something crazy like that. <laughs> Maybe I mean, right? You, Think about it. Yeah. Well, if you put all the stuff from St. Andrews University yeah, uh, in the archives absolutely. There, and the things that have been brought in out of the blue, uh, uh, I've seen a lot. And, and, of course, I'm glad to say that several of these items, you know, people just donated to the, to the uh, Hall of Fame. Unbelievable, right. Yeah. yeah. In the right spot. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Where they belong. Wow. All right. So, I mean, I I had to dive into that because I just think that part of your life. And by the way, Tony, there's no way I'm letting you go without being on multiple podcasts. So this is not going to be a one-off. So (laughs) just just put it in your calendar. There's no chance. The next one, I'm not going to be in pain. That's the goal. Um, Oh, okay. But let's get in in the open. We're a week away from the open or under a week from the open. Absolutely. I'm just going to let you talk for a while. Let's talk about um, the days prior to the Open. What were the circumstances uh, for why the Open started, how it started? And I I suppose the last part would be, you know, did they expect it to become what it ultimately became? Uh, Let's go way back. Uh, Let's go back a little bit for the Open. You bet. Go. Okay. Well, I mean, if you really want to get to it, we have to start 1851. Uh, when the uh, Archibald Montgomery and uh, James Ogilvy Fairley uh, hired Tom Morris away from St. Andrews to come build a golf course at Prestwick. Uh, and, of course, th- at that time, you know, you started having trains, and thanks to uh, Queen Victoria, you had a lot of people coming to Scotland because that was her favorite place. Uh, so it became a tourist destination, and, of course, golf was already going on quite a bit. Then you have the advent of the gutta percha. Uh, 1848, and uh, that made golf available to the masses. Yeah. So uh, the Earl of Eglinton uh, decided to, to build a golf course at Prestwick, got uh, old Tom Morris to build it, 12 holes. Uh, and then they wanted to host a tournament kind of coming along. Well, they wanted to get it on the map, let's put it that way. But it was kind of, yeah. the forerunner to that was, of course, the, the Grand National, which again was uh, the brainchild of James O. Fairley, 
um, and George White Melville at uh, the RNA. Um, he was captain in 1852. But they uh, got together and decided to send out a letter uh, to all the clubs, known clubs at the time. There was only about 12 of them, uh, inviting each club to send their two best players, not professionals, but amateurs, uh, to play in a, uh, a competition called the Grand National Invitation. And, uh, and they did. They played at St. Andrews, 1857. That year, it was uh, alternate shots uh, between each two players. Uh, and believe it or not, it was the English golf club that won, Blackheath. The following year, it was individual play uh, for the next two years. And then that was superseded by the Open. Now, the Open came about primarily because uh, your man, Alan Robertson, passed away 1859. And Alan was the undisputed champion golfer of Scotland. And as you notice, when they present the Claret Jug every year, they say to the champion golfer of the year, that's where it goes back to all the way to 1860. But anyway, Alan died in 1859, so the question arose, who is the next champion golfer uh, of Scotland? And uh, and so uh, Montgomery, or the Earl of Eglinton, and uh, Fairley got together and said, well, let's have a tournament uh, and they sent out invitations for the professionals who were primarily club makers ball makers caddies uh, folks who are in the business but they're not quote gentlemen golfers uh, yeah they, yeah you, well, have, to, you well, have to vouch for them that's one of my favorite parts right that the club well, had to vouch well, for their well they did it. mainly mainly yeah. because mainly because most of them were <clears throat> Well, you know, that Pioneer Day for the laborers was uh, <clears throat> might have been carried over to the caddies as well. You never know. Yeah, um, absolutely. But but they were kind of known to uh, to enjoy life. Let's put it that, that way. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Um, and so uh, so there was concern, you know, about, oh, do we really want these guys coming to town? Um, but they did, and they came. Now, what was kind of interesting is that uh, the Earl of Eglinton made them wear – uh, the plaid jackets so that folks would recognize who they were uh, yeah. and also to, to distinguish them from the uh, the rest of the Motley crew that might have been around um, Presswick at the time. Um, so they began, and of course it was by invitation the first year, 1860. Uh, and of course Willie Park Sr. won it that first, first time. Uh, but in 1861, because a lot of amateurs and others had wanted to play, they said, well, let's open it up to all the world, hence the Open. Not yeah. the British Open. It is oh, the Open. Right. Okay. It's a can of I'm, worms you can I'm, eat right I'm, in there, Tony. <laughs> I'm one of those weird people that, say, that, that will correct you if you say the British Open. It is not the British yeah. Open. It's open to the world. I agree. Always has been. I agree. From 1861 onwards. Uh, and it started. Now, whether they envisioned it being such uh, a success – I don't know, but in 1870, you know, when young Tommy won his third time yeah. in a row and got to keep the belt, and they didn't play in 1871, uh, there were decisions to be made. And they did make the decision because they felt that this was such an attraction and such a positive thing that there should be a national championship uh, that they wanted to make sure that it would carry on. Of course, we know young Tom won it in 1872 as well. But, yeah, I yeah. think it just kind of went from there. Yeah, I wonder, I, I always wonder two things, right? So I, and, and I don't think we can answer this, but um, 
I wonder how big of a part Willie Park played, Willie Park Sr., obviously, in the, uh, in, at least in Fairley's mind, is establishing the Open. Because if he wasn't so cocky and just brazen <laughs> challenging Alan Robertson and then uh, old Tom Morris, and they had these like legendary matches of the late 1950s, yep. if, if it's, it's, Willie yeah. Park isn't a kind of cocky punk that had basically, um, you know, no problem telling you that he was going to beat you at Sunday um, or not Sunday, but Saturday, right? That could yeah. play on the old yeah. course on Sunday, but well, actually, he had no problem. Yeah, yeah, right. But he had no problem putting people in their place. And I wonder sometimes late at night when it really doesn't matter, of course, is that, is there even a question who's the greatest golf, who's the champion golfer of Scotland, if not for the brash Willie Park? Cause I think it goes straight to Tom Morris. I don't, you know what I mean? I, I don't think there was even a doubt had Willie Park not been as brash and arrogant as he was? I don't know. I mean, because you, you're right. Uh, Willie Park did challenge everybody. Of course, he was, what, about 12 years younger than, than old Tom. Yeah. Um, but uh, uh, he wasn't afraid to challenge anybody. He got beat uh, quite a lot, and yeah. he won quite a lot. Uh, but, you know, when you have these money matches going on, as they did, because that's how they made a lot of their money was the side bets and things, uh, you know, when you see challenges for 50 pounds, well, you know, 50 pounds at the time, you, you, you're talking about $50,000. Uh, yeah. These were not these were not minor things, and, and you'd have hundreds and hundreds of people show up. And, of course, there is the famous uh, match between old Tom and, and Willie Park where uh, it got kind of hostile and, and old Tom. The marathon match? Exactly, yeah. I, yeah. I, I don't know if you know this, but I, you might. You might have seen my office. I have an original oil painting of old Tom Morris in uh, uh, Mrs. Foreman's pub smoking a pipe while <laughs> Willie Park is standing on the green with Bob Ferguson, his caddy behind him, just miffed. <laughs> That's what he should be. I'd, but when yeah. but when you got the crowd kicking the balls and stepping on the ball and knocking them into the Oh, crowd, no, yeah. absolutely. Uh, yeah, it was you know, the dirty yeah. miners of Musselboro, right? It the absolutely dirty miners. Yeah. I mean, but, what a uh, time, right? What an amazing time in golf. Well, thing it's is, just so you know, raw. Well, if it comes down to it, when you look at Alan Robertson and the pairing of Alan Robertson and Tom Mars, you know it has been reputed they never lost a match when yeah. they played together. Uh, and I believe that. And of course, you put a lot of money on that. Then when you have Willie Park come along and say, "Hey, I'll take you guys on," you know, yeah, uh, let's do it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that's when he lost a lot. By the way. <laughs> well, you know, but, the great thing though, I think out of that is that Willie Park. If not for Willie Park, I don't think we get the best of old Tom Morris. I mean, you know, old Tom Morris gives up smoking, you know, just yeah. to get himself in shape to take on that, you know, strapping punk from the South. Uh, yeah. It's just, yeah. I mean, here, let me ask you this. I, I don't know this. I don't know this. I don't know if you know this. Do we know how they really felt about each other? Old Tom uh, Morris and Willie Park. Is there I any indication? No, I've got a feeling that they they were not friends. <laughs> <laughs> Me too, right? I mean, how could you and be? I, and I said, right? How nice, could yeah. you be? Uh, because if you look at the you know the first what twelve uh, Open Championships, eleven of them were won by Morris or Park. Only yeah. one won in eighteen sixty five at uh, Andrew Strath, who died in eighteen sixty seven. Yeah. So who knows if he might have made a difference later? Uh, but you know, so there you've got this inbuilt competition, familial competition. Because it goes on after that. You know, you got Willie Park Jr., 1887, 1889. Yeah. Uh, Mungo, who, right? Yeah. 
and Mungo, who won in 1874. So, yeah, uh, it, it is definitely a Hatfield and McCoy kind of situation, I think. Just, yeah. to, just to break in from I mean, there, Tony. Just, do, do, yeah, go ahead. Does that, and, and I'm thinking particularly the match where you know Tom Morris went into the pub and refused to come out and play, and some of those shenanigans and those big money matches, and that was obviously oh, yeah. the entertainment of golf at the time. Does all of oh, that yeah. mean that the Open becomes the super credible tournament because it has none of that sideline stuff? Does it take on extra importance because it's played under a format where there is none of that? Oh, there was plenty of side betting going on. Uh, <laughs> Amongst the players as well? Well, well, you got well, you got to remember, you know, until eighteen sixty four, the winner did not receive any money. Yeah, uh, and it went until what was it? Was it eighteen sixty four? The winner didn't even receive the money. I just did a story well, on that. Yeah, eighteen sixty four, he did. Uh, old Tom got six pounds. Was which it was about? Uh, yeah, eighteen sixty three. Was it then, or was it? I no, think it was no, sixty three. Willie Park no, won, didn't get a check, yeah, but Old right. Tom Morris did. That's yeah. right. And what? What? Yeah, because second, third, and fourth place got got paid. It was 10 pounds divided between second, third, and fourth, but the winner didn't get any money, no. Not until 1864. <laughs> I, that's, I mean, they corrected it, and old Tom Morris got the cash, but God, if you're Willie exactly. Park, you just win the Open Championship, you gotta put down, I assume he didn't have to put down the deposit on the... Oh, you did. The, yes, sir, you did. You think he did even then when he didn't get a Absolutely. check? Absolutely, yeah. So, you, how did yeah, they justify that? What do, you, what do you think on that? Well, you gotta remember the, the reputation of... Uh, <laughs> professional golfers at the time no absolutely they were right they were afraid that a winner would take the belt and sell it for the silver and, yeah. and take off with the cash uh, so yeah so they had to pay a deposit uh but isn't uh, it and, one of the most amazing opens pounds. yeah it's oh, yeah. an amazing open to me that your winner doesn't get it's the only time the winner makes less than the i did a little story on that uh, the winner made less than the second place finisher that's in the right. history right. of all major championships. Well, it's all like the Ryder Cup. It's all about the honor. Yeah, so true. <laughs> least and the what, side bet's probably made up for it, right? And that's exactly where the money came from. Exactly right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, I mean, you know, you, you got to think about this. There's there's no money for the winner uh, for the first four years of the, of the Open. Uh, and then it's not a whole lot after that. Six pounds, which is uh, what, yeah. that's $600, $700 at the time. Um so, you know, uh, pride can go only so far. <laughs> you, you need some cash yeah. to pay for getting over to getting over to the West Coast. You know, these guys have come from Musselboro, from St. Andrews. Now, do remember, you know, that in 1867, now, St. Andrews started a, their professional uh, tournament for golf professionals in St. Andrews, 1867. So the Open was not the only championship going. And, and the St. Andrews Professional Championship paid the winner and paid a lot more out than the Open did for years. Yeah. That's amazing. I've not heard of this tournament. Um, let's well, do this. Yeah, sorry. Sorry, Connor. No, I was just going to say, and that's right. I was going to say, first of all, I want to say to the listeners, this is why I want you to get excited in golf's history. I mean, like, specifically this area, era of time is like, kind of like studying the Wild West, you, yeah. To understand what the Open is today, you need to understand just the raw magnetism of the game back then. And, you know, we haven't even touched on Tommy, I mean, um, and what he did for the game and why we played for the Claret Jug. But I, I just, I, that's what I, I mean, I think that's why Tony does what he does. And I think that's mm. why the historians do what they do. And they write these books and, and they tell these stories and they share this 
uh, either visual or storytelling history of the game of golf is because I really truly think that you can take so much out of the modern game from looking at where we've been. And I mean, whether it's the gutty transitioning to uh, the Haskell ball, and we're looking at how the Pro V1 affects the game now. Um, I don't. I just. I love hearing Tony's talk about it. I'm sorry, I'm rambling a little bit because I get so excited. Um, but let's let's do this. Let's let's move forward a little bit because I know we had a lot of uh, people. I did a poll before, and okay. they wanted to hear uh, about the uh, the great triumphant. So let's fast uh, forward now, thirty uh, some years, and the importance yeah. of the great the great triumphant. 1894. Actually, it's kind of interesting because yeah. it's it was all pretty much. I mean, Scots won it up until 1890. And then you have an amateur, John Ball, comes in 1890, he wins. And then 1892, you have another amateur from England, uh, Harold Hilton, comes in. But starting 1894, then you have the rise of J.H. Taylor, Harry Varden, and, of course, James Braid, uh, uh, English, Scottish, and Jersey. Uh, Out of 21 21 opens between 1894 and 2000. 1914, uh, 16 of the 21 Opens were won by these three men. Jay Taylor won five, James Braid won five, Harry Varden won six. And the other ones to kind of disrupt that whole thing, you had Sandy Hurd won uh, 1902, you had um, uh, Arnold Massey in 1907, the first Frenchman, the first Continental winner of the Open. And, of course, you had Ted Ray in 1912 and Jack White, Jack White in 1904. Uh, so you have uh, these guys, and Harold Hilton won his second in 1897. Uh, but here you have these three men actually dominating. And not only did they win 16 out of the 21, they came in second in just about every one of those, one or two of them. Yeah. They kind of alternated between the, between the three of them. They were first and second. Only a couple of three times, I think, did they not make the top two. Uh, but so, all of them, top five. What made them stand out amongst the rest? I mean, because they're all from three different areas. By the way, I'm glad you said Jersey. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But they're, you know, they're, they're from different parts of the country, different backgrounds, different yeah. upbringing. Oh, yeah. Was there something that, that connected them there? Uh, well... A couple of things kind of come to mind. Again, you, you mentioned the Haskell 1898. That kind of comes in. We have the Varden yeah. Fire. Uh, you know, um, the, oh, absolutely. The, the wild, you know, wild ball coming in. But uh, uh, Varden's swing, uh, you know, which is, is the overlapping grip and that kind of thing. It, it, we've all seen the films of these guys swinging. Uh, they... All right, we talk about the the players today. If you don't have a 120 mile an hour swing, you know you're not gonna you're not gonna compete. Uh, Absolutely. Well, believe it or not, right. well, believe it or not, these guys the, the speed. Well, I know they they did uh, Bobby Jones swing test when a 126 miles an hour swing. Yeah, that's Bobby Jones with with hickories. So these guys had had similar swings. I mean, uh, well, we can go back to to young Tommy when he he swung so hard that his his bonnet came off when he swung the ball. You know, <laughs> right, uh, right. But uh, but these guys were big hitters. And of course, then you, you got to throw Ted Ray in there. I mean, Bill Williams be oh, happy absolutely. to hear that. Um, yeah, see what. But <laughs> yeah, but uh, uh, but these guys were hitters. Uh, but you know, can we really say that they stood head and shoulders above everybody else? Well, I, obviously they did. 
but then you got Sandy Hurd. Sandy Hurd was a great player sure. and also one of one of the guys. Uh, Willie Octo. A lot of top five finishes too. Yeah, exactly yeah. right. And then you got uh, Tom Ball. I mean, th- there's other guys. Jack White. Uh, these yeah. guys were players, but. Uh, the only thing is, you know, uh, uh, Varden never won at St. Andrews. That's the one thing I, I'll never forgive him for. Uh, he should have won at St. Andrews. Yeah. Uh, but he never did. Huh. But, uh, uh, but I don't know why these guys, well, they played off each other, obviously. Uh, yeah, and, that and, definitely helps. And, and when you've got somebody, A, that you, that you know and apparently know quite well, um, and who are all big-time competitors, <laughs> You've got to have that killer yeah. instinct, and they did. Uh, I think they played off each other because of that. You know, Varden, uh, I, I'm going to beat Braid. I'm going to beat uh, yeah. uh, Taylor. And Taylor saying, nah, I'm going to take it this time. You know, uh, when you've got that, it becomes a three man competition rather than forget the field of, of uh, 80 players, you know, 56 players, right. whatever. It's those three guys. They're play, actually playing against each other. Uh, you know, one of the yeah. things, one of the things that I find so remarkable about those three is that they were dominant before the Haskell ball took off. And yeah. if you, I mean, you look through time, look through history, you find sometimes it's very hard for the the grizzled veteran to take on the new technology. And right. you'll find, you know, people like Tiger coming into the age of uh, the the multi layered ball was. Right. You know, he, he took it, he was in early, he took over the ball in early, and he understood the ball before many of the veterans did. And, yeah, I, I mean, obviously, great. he's otherworldly talented, I get that, there was all that too. But these three, not just two of them, but all three of them, took on a, a ball, because you know this too, I mean, the Haskell was been in 1898, but That's it really right. didn't, it took years to come into favor. I mean, there are That's articles true. about why the American ball is this horrible ball in Great yeah. Britain. Right, it putted horribly, yeah. and you can't chip with it, and you can't, you know, it's too hot. Um, yeah. which is that's, nowadays you'd look at right. that, and people would scoff, right? Thus, right? No one would ever say on tour the Pro V One goes too far. <laughs> you know, well, maybe a lot, a lot of folks are saying that, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But but the tour pros aren't saying it, right? No, absolutely not. No. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you look at uh, um, Willie Park Jr. 1889, he made his own clubs and he made his own golf balls. Yeah. Uh, So these guys had a hand in in what was going on. And then, of course, what, in 1900, we had the first uh, uh, U.S. Open one using a Haskell. So there are uh, new technology coming in. Believe it or not, you also see the beginnings of uh, aluminum shafts or aluminum heads anyway. I know Varden's putter was aluminum head. Um, yeah, was that was he playing a Mills? Aluminum yes. Patton? Was that what yeah. that was? That's what it was. Yeah. yeah. I tell and, people uh, all the time that everything that you think is new is not new. If you look at right. they were called one irons, but it's essentially a hybrid. You've seen that's them, right. I'm sure. Oh yeah. It's a hickory oh, yeah. shafted iron that was patented in 1898. Yeah. I didn't know he had those, so Tony, I really didn't. Well, I'll tell you, I'll, you know, everybody talks about when were cleats, you know, uh, uh, yeah. stops. Well, I, I've got uh, in one of the um, um, old magazines, 1898, um, an advert for uh, rubber spots to go into the oh, bottom oh. of a shoe that will not spikes. damage the green. Yeah. And wow. uh, also rubber grips 
uh, uh, that actually went from large that uh, uh, went smaller as you went down the grip. Uh, yeah, being advertised. So you know, you got rubber grips coming in in the late 1890s as well. So yeah, I, I don't think I've ever seen technology that. starting. In, yeah, I have to, well, I think I did an article about that. Might be on the uh, World Golf Hall of Fame website. Uh, if you look in the old news and put in. Uh, yeah, I will. Sure, something like that. You know, I think you'll. I wrote about that. Um, so yeah, there, there's you know a lot of innovations, left, right, and center. Of course, you got to remember at this time too. After the after the uh, the Haskell, don't want to get into the golf balls here. We're talking about the Open Championship, but sure. you know you had you had fillings of all types. You had uh, iron fillings. You had water. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Mercury. You know sawdust. You know some balls that exploded. Um, but they were trying everything. Um, and so, yeah, so these, this was a time where there's a lot of innovation going on, uh, a lot of changes. And, and maybe you're right. These three guys in particular kind of honed in on what they knew, and they played to their skills on that level. Yeah. Uh, I think let's, it's great. Yeah. Let's do this, Tony. So I, I'm sure we have quite a, people, quite a few people from North America here listening, as well as around the world. We know that. Um, but maybe give people a little bit idea of Harry Varden's impact on golf in the United States. Because, you know, he's ah. a great champion overseas. How, you know, whether you call him the Johnny Appleseed or not, but give everybody at home or in their car an idea how big of a deal it was in 1900. Because I, well, I think it's a great story. Yeah, well, he came over, you know, he was sponsored to come over uh, and do a series of exhibitions, which he did. Influenced a lot of people, by the way. Uh, there were already a lot of Scots in particular who had come over because golf had started to really take off around 1888. Uh, clubs were being built exponentially. Uh, and so Varden came over to to raise the impetus of the game, but also to kind of hawk his, his golf ball. Yeah. Um, and he plays in the U.S. Open in 1900, and he wins in 1900. Chicago Golf Club, yeah. Absolutely. So he wins the U.S. Open in 1900. Uh, and then, of course, uh, from there, he and Ted Ray made several trips back and forth uh, and yeah. traveled together around the United States, giving exhibitions. And they played all over and played good money matches as well. But they really brought Harry Varden. Uh, I'm not afraid to say is probably the first international sports superstar. Yeah, I agree. With and that. he was. He was. Um, because he was he like drew, the Beatles he, making landfall, right? <laughs> I mean, he was for the days. game of golf here. Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly he changed right. the, no, exactly right. of the game. He did. Yeah, absolutely. He did. I mean, even from I tell people that I don't think a lot of people understand this, but he changed in weird ways architecture in the United States. I mean, a lot of our courses in 1900 were really dirt tracks. He was playing off of golf courses in oh, Florida yeah. that were literally made of sand. So that's, especially well, right. you're playing, you're playing a bunker. For nine holes, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, a lot of the, a lot of the greens, yeah, for years, as you know, were were sand greens, especially yeah. in Florida and then Midwest Down as well. Down the south, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, uh, my friend Hale Irwin was telling me a while back that you know he learned to play golf on sand greens. Is that right? Uh, because that's what the yeah. Wow. And so, so it's not that far in the distance that we've had uh, sand greens still being used. Um, but yeah, he. Um, he certainly brought an impact and really raised the profile of the game because he made headlines. Uh, you know, Harry Varden coming to play against the local pro, 
So everybody comes yeah. out to see what's happening there. And of course, a lot of these local pros are Scotsmen, a few Englishmen thrown in the mix there, uh, but mostly Scots from St. Andrews, Perth, and uh, Carnoustie, Aberdeen. I think Bill hates it when I tell this story, but the, uh, he lost only, what, two head-to-head matches uh, that weren't, where stro- strokes weren't you know, given by handicap reasons. Right. It was to the same person, Gilbert Nichols, who, yeah. who really never did much other than be the giant slayer at the beginning. He beat him at the beginning of the trip and the end. So he right. had the revenge opportunity, still found a way to win. And Gilbert Nichols is kind of like a lost superstar in golf. The giant yeah. slayer never went to U.S. Open. I think he finished like top five maybe once or twice. But that that's right. his one asterisk. That's his one asterisk in all of history. Now, I think there's something to be said. That I think both tracks were – one was dirt and the other one was in Florida, which was sand. Right. So <laughs> just, it's – I don't know. I just find that hilarious. I just love that story yeah. of this guy that nobody knows about. You know, the, the but, guy who was basically Tiger Woods and Jack Nicklaus built into one person right, at the time. Right, right. Well, what's, what's interesting is, is, you know, most Americans, if you say Harry Varden, the only thing they think about is Francis Romet, greatest game yeah. ever played, 1913. Yeah. And they forget yeah. this guy won the Open six times. Yeah. Six yeah. times more than anybody Not else real. ever. Uh, so, yeah, he was uh, with those three guys absolutely dominated the game for 20 years. And then World War One intervened, <laughs> you know, which kind of put a crap on everything. Yeah. You've kind of brought us neatly back to the Open because we've got a bit off track there, which is what happens here. But sorry, sorry about that. No, 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 not at all. No. All it's of it all interesting. About, it's all about the that was on me. No, no, no. The, okay. the only rule was it's got to be interesting, and it's, and it's all interesting. But back to the Open, Tony. So where does it stand, yeah. the Open? Can we rank tournaments against it? This is the you know the age old debate: which is the best major? All those sorts of things. Where do you stand on those uh, sorts yeah. of discussions? Are they just oh, pointless? Well, well, for me, yeah, it is pretty pointless. But for me, I mean, without question, it's the Open Championship. And if you put it on the global scale, you know, a, a lot of times people say, well, it's the Masters now. Uh, no, it's not. <laughs> you know, yeah, on, on the global scale, let's go to the Open. And that's why I say it is not the British Open. It is the Open. Um, the U.S. And actually, it started being called the British Open because of uh, – American journalists wanted to raise yeah. the profile and prestige of the U.S. Open uh, because most every country that has golf has their own national know, Open. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah. But for me, it's it's uh, yeah, it's the Open Championship. Always has been. Yeah. And how has it survived? Do you think, Tony? Because at any uh, there would have been junctures along the way where the Open. You mentioned the professionals championship that was started there at yeah. St Andrews. There, there must have yeah. been many times along the way when the Open could have just become irrelevant, and yet it didn't. What have been? What were some of those key moments? Because of course, well, it almost next yeah, week will be one did. of the biggest, <laughs> one of the biggest deals yeah. in the world, won't it? Next week, and that wasn't That's guaranteed right, yeah. to always be the case. No, it wasn't. Well, again, you go back to World War One. You know, we had four years, five years where uh, yeah. it wasn't played. Uh, and then World War Two, and and uh, uh, you know you had the uh, periods of dominance there. Therefore, well, during the Walter Hagen, Bobby Jones, Gene Saracen era, 1920s, early 30s, uh, you know Tommy Armour, Denny Shute, these guys before World War Two, they were coming over to play. But again, the money—I uh, mean, let's be honest—you know, money talks uh, was never very good for the Open Championship, and. Uh, you know, after after World War II, uh, 
when you had Sam Snead win in 1946 in St. Andrews. Yeah. And they, uh, you know, handed him the check and said, we hope you come back next year to defend your title. And he said, no way. <laughs> I lost money coming away. Uh, yeah. It wasn't until 1960. I mean, every, and that's why I've got that picture on my wall of, of Arnold Palmer on the 10th tee with Tip Anderson standing there next to him in 1960. He reinvigorated. I mean, when Hogan came in 53 after winning the Masters in the U.S. Open uh, to do the, the, the big three, um, that raised a lot. He came one time. He won one time at Carnoustie, um, yeah. which is great. I mean, oh, we can tell stories about that, too, um, where he, uh, during the practice rounds, he wanted the greens enlarged, and the, the greenkeeper said, well, there's a lot more. Go do it yourself, and he did. But anyway. Oh, uh, sorry. But sorry. Is that right? Sorry, back up. What oh, did yeah. you just say? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he, yeah, yeah. You didn't know he that. He mowed it. Yeah. No, I did not know that. I didn't know that. Yeah. He yeah. mowed the green yeah. to make it bigger. Yeah. Ben Hogan. Yeah. Yeah, Ben Hogan. That, how, that's not, how is that not, not the Hogan green not, today? That, that's not, yeah, that's not Carnegie. That's at Pan Muir, which is yeah. right next to where, where they did the qualifiers. Uh, oh, I did okay. not know that. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. I yeah. still didn't know that. The said, but, you know, there, there's, there's a lot more, man. Go, go do it yourself. And he did. <laughs> Anyway, uh, <laughs> 19, 1960, you know, Palmer wanted to do what Hogan did in 53. He wanted to win the big three. Uh, it was and of course, also that's, the 30th anniversary, right? That's right. And, yeah. and that's when he wanted to, uh, uh, well, he spoke to Bob Drum about, you know, the four major championships, the Grand Slam, uh, on the flight over to, to Scotland, to, uh, to Scotland, St. Andrews, he lost. But, to kill Nagel by a stroke. But anyway, uh, but because Palmer and the age of television, thank you very much, um, Palmer shows up and he brings the world with him and it's televised. And so now all of a sudden, if Palmer's there, America's got to go. And now it's being televised, it's got to grow. And so Palmer is credited with really reinvigorating the Open Championship. And, And I give him credit for that. Yeah. That's so good. I, I, I look at it. I think there are several occasions in the history of the Open that could have gone almost any other way. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I think of young, young Tom Morris winning in 1870 and then Prestwick saying, yeah. you know, we're not going to, you know, put forth the money for another trophy. And then right. all of a sudden you have the first Open Rota and the partnership with the Honorable Company of Edinburgh Golfers and the RNA. That yeah. could have gone in a totally different direction. And then I look well, at true. I'm not going to. I'm not going to dive into this because it's the story of the next podcast, but the, uh, the open championship of 1892 called the stolen major, as I call it, uh, where the honorable it. company of Edinburgh golfers, 82 days before the plane of the open championship moves the open from Musabra to, uh, Muirfield. Yeah, uh, Muirfield yep. and the Musabra open funded mostly by Willie Park's own money on the same day for a larger purse. Right. To potentially steal away player. I mean, I, that story. This is the one. I, the narrative I tell here. You'll well, hear it, next it, week, it, folks. It tripled. It tripled the prize money. Yeah, it tripled the prize money. Yeah, and that's 100 the first pounds, time, right? Uh, well, thirty-five pounds for the winner. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, for the winner. But what's but what's interesting is that's also the first time that it went to seventy-two holes. Seventy-two holes. Yeah. And I have some quotes from there about players who are complaining about the conditioning of Muirfield because it's not even a year old. That's you right. know, it, it, it's soft conditions. It's not Lynx golf because it's too soft. So I, yeah. I think of that moment. Um, I think World War One, yes, but I don't know if there was 
it feels like it was always going to happen. I think the yeah. bigger question was World War II because yeah. Europe was decimated. Yeah. I mean, I'm shocked that Sam Sneed went over there in 46 because the infrastructure across Europe was devastated. They were in a yeah. severe depression. Oh, yeah, um, for several years. And, though, and too bad he was a jerk about it. But, I mean, you think <laughs> about the opportunity to be an ambassador, essentially what you know Hogan did in 53 yeah. versus – Sam Snead going over there and basically insulting people on their golf. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. There's been so many cool pivotal moments though. I think that's the charm of the open too, is it just keeps fighting on, you know, whether Americans are attending the open, uh, right. whether, you know, coming after world wars, which were fought on grounds near it. Um, right. It's one of the great things about it. Not that it's the granddaddy of them all, obviously. Well, yeah, obviously it is. Now, I'll tell you, I mean, as you say, there are pivotal moments. And, and there's also been times of controversy where you've got like uh, 1876 uh, when you had Davy Strath, uh, who was leading. But on the 17th hole, he hit into the green. Uh, the players on the green complained when him disqualified. Came to a playoff. He refused to play. Uh, and oh, really, that's right. Yeah. In, in essence, just gave the tournament to Bob yeah. Martin. Uh, yeah. because the, the ruling was never settled on the 17th, uh, his play on 17. Um, and, and then, I mean, I have to bring kind of more up to date. Uh, uh, in, in 1960, uh, you know, I mentioned Arnold Palmer reinvigorating the Open. Well, there's also a political aspect to that. Uh, you know, when Gary Player wore those trousers with one black leg, That's one right. white That's leg, right. yeah. to uh, protest apartheid in South Africa. Yeah. yeah. And then in 2000, he wore the same trousers again to celebrate the end of apartheid in South Africa. So the Knowing open, Gary Player, he probably had to take him in. He's in great shape. He's in great well, shape. That's my point, well, is that well, he I've probably got, lost weight and gained muscle. Well, I've, gained, I've got photographs of him in 1960. Uh, him and, yeah. and uh, Jack Nicholas, who, uh, of course, at that time was Fat Jack. Um, yeah. But, uh, but Player looks exactly the same. Actually, he looks a little tiny. Young kid is what he looks like. But uh, but he was willing to, to make a political statement, which I don't agree with that. I think golf should be about golf. But, I uh, agree. Yeah. But there has been controversy yeah, in times past. They were tumultuous times, and that particular issue was a was one that went in Ash. We had all sorts of issues here in Australia with the rugby tour, South African rugby yeah, tour. They, oh, that's right. That's right. So, oh, yeah. That was a real uh, political so, sort of hot button. When the Open rolls around each year, it's the 148th staging this coming week, Tony. Yep. What do you yep. sort of think about? What does the Open mean? What do you sort of look forward to about the Open each year? Because, of course, you've got a, a mind full of knowledge and information that most of us don't. We watch the golf and see who hits the shots and holds the putts and, you know, somebody's played an amazing shot into the 18th. And they're the things we remember. Do you see a bigger picture because of what you've done or do you just enjoy the, the play as it unfolds day to day like the rest of us? Well, I've, I've, I've missed five, now six Opens in the last 25 years. Um, oh, yeah, um, mainly, well, a couple of them have been Royal St. George's because there's not much around there. Um, yeah. And then uh, the others is because I've been over here and just didn't make the trip over. But, you know, w when they first started expanding the rota, when they brought in Hoy Lake, you know, Royal Liverpool and Royal St. George's, and then they started moving it around. And I thought, OK, this is this is OK. Uh, St. Port. Eh, you know, one year, I actually like that course better than I do um, Royal St. George's, but that's a whole other story. Um, but uh, 
now that's going to Port Rush, you know, 1951, Max Faulkner won there. Uh, I think it's good, although I think the RNA have made some changes. You know, this year, if there's a playoff, it's only a three-hole playoff. Uh, that's too four bad. Yeah. Uh, well, it is. Um, although I'm, I'm sure Tom Watson in 2009 would have would have appreciated not having any hope. <laughs> oh, you <laughs> have to go now. there. Yes. I, well, I mean, Tony, know, I'm cutting you off. You're done. I just well, I, stopped crying yesterday from that. I know it, uh, who did. Oh, I, I think oh. everybody, everybody but Stuart Sink's mama and his dog wanted uh, Tom Watson to win. I'm not sure about his dog. I was going to say, I think, I, I think I the dog Stuart. admitted light of it. It wasn't fully on yeah. board. That's right. Yeah. I used to, uh, about a two year, I think maybe it was a year after um, that open, Zach Johnson threw uh, a charity golf tournament at a country club I used to belong to, Elmcrest Country Club in Iowa. Mm-hmm. And Stuart Sink came, and I was talking to him on the tee box. And I actually apologized to him. I mean, he had no idea really who I was, but I was just like, right. you know what? I, I said, Mr. Sink, I am just so sorry. And he was like, you know, you know what for? And I said, I really hated you <laughs> up until about now. <laughs> I mean, like literally up until about right now. Yeah. And he's yeah, just he knows so, that for he's one of the nicest people. Yeah, he's one of he the is. nicest people on the planet. And he yeah. was hated, hated at no fault yeah. of his own. He won yeah. the Open. Yeah. But I mean, a 59 year old, almost 60 year old man almost right. wins the Open. Yeah. It would have been a 15 year difference between the oldest winner and the previous. Yeah. Unreal. Yeah, it still pains me to think about that. Think it was that yeah, big of well, a deal. That can only sure happen at the Open, too. can't it, Tony? Is well, that one right. of the things that yeah. makes it special? That can only well, I think happen. So. Can't it? Sure. I, 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 yeah. I think so. I mean, it, it, it is the, the biggest stage. I mean, you know, you talk about the U.S. Open or the PGA Championship or the Masters. I mean, uh, the Masters, absolutely. I mean, I love going to the Masters as well. But the Open is, is the world stage. And uh, and you do have the best players. And, and the thing about the Open is Link's golf. That's right. It demands a style of golf that, that doesn't, you don't need yes. to be Dustin Johnson to contend, do you? That's you can bingo. do it another You got it in one. Any, any player on any given day can win the Open. Uh, if you have course management, I mean, I, I remember Tiger, you know, playing at Hoy Lake, and oh, didn't use yes. his driver, didn't use his driver a single time. Um, yeah, unreal. And, yeah, and and of course, when he won it at St Andrews, two thousand five, uh, he didn't hit a single bunker. So yeah. you know that uh, I, I was at a, a, a talk that Jack Nicholas gave in Edinburgh, uh, and somebody asked him in the Q and A, said, um, you know. What do you need to do to win at St. Andrews? And I love what Nicholas said. He said, you find out where the bunkers are, and you don't hit it there. <laughs> I love it. And I said, I love that. that's perfect. That is absolutely yeah. perfect. Genius. Yeah. But, but I think the, the Open, like I say, because it is so international now, and, and, and uh, you know they have yeah. qualifiers all over the world, right. so you have Japan, people come from everywhere. Yeah. Um, it is definitely on the world stage. Um I don't agree with everything that the RNA is doing so far as, as leaving the, the, the course and not being able to come back and things like that, because yeah. it does hurt the local economies. But having said that, uh, you know, in St. Andrews, uh, when it opens in St. Andrews, it brings 100 million pounds to the local wow. economy. Well, 100 fantastic. million pounds. It yeah. is. So, so it's not just the impact of the golf and the golfing world, but it's everything around really benefits from the open being being held there. 
Um, and it is a it's a, it's a an event. It's a spectacle. It's not just and a it's sport. History. It's not a sporting event. Is it? It's, it's bigger than that. Exactly. It's one of the world's it's much bigger than that. sporting carnivals. It's much bigger than that. Yeah, indeed. I just I I think it's I love it probably well for many things. When you're here in the states watching it, you basically wake up and you're in it. I mean, it's <laughs> yeah, like right. all day. You know, they never. It seems like they never stop broadcasting it. So it's yeah. always on my television. No matter like right. every floor of my house. I'm on vacation basically for work anytime the opens on. Uh, I'm right. taking a, a vacation next week. Unfortunately, not going to Ireland, but I'll be with family, and I will just right. be watching the open. And then when you That'll play it, in many, in many opens, you're playing through multiple climates. You're yeah. having to control your ball flight. You don't have to do that at the U.S. Open for the most part. That's you don't true. have to do that at the Masters. You have to hit a specific type of shot to have the best chance to win at the Masters. You have well, you to know, be – yeah, go ahead. No, 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 you finish, finish your thought. I was just going to say, I mean, for every other major, there are specific things you need to do. And I think this is just me. I think you have to be more well-rounded in every aspect in the game in the open versus the others. There's more well, scrambling different. different. Yeah. yeah, I love it. You have to play the wind, and if the wind's not blowing, it's different. I, I know in 1961, uh, when Palmer did win uh, at Troon, he... Uh, he hit a shot that Henry Cotton said was the greatest shot he'd ever seen. Uh, uh, Palmer was playing with a small ball, the 1.62 yeah. British golf ball, which, by the way, is still available in Australia, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, oh. Um, no, I think 80. Is that right? 82, we finally switched across, I think. Yeah. Well, I know that. I know you if you're wrong, Rod, if you're wrong, I'm going to have you ship me some balls. No, no, no. I would love know. to try it. I'd love to try a 162. No, no, no. We well, I've got two right here in my office. So uh, I've, I've lost all my other ones. I used to play those quite a bit. But uh, Palmer hit a uh, shot from underneath a blueberry bush. And Gale Force wins 160 yards. I think he hit a six iron uh, right to the yeah. heart of the green. And But it was, it was it, it cut through the wind because that's what the small ball does. It travels a lot better with the wind conditions. Yeah. Uh, but But – uh, Henry Cotton said that that was the greatest shot he'd ever seen. And, of course, as we know, Palmer went on to win that, that Open Championship. And there's a plaque there, is there, um, in that spot where he hit from? I think there is. I'm pretty I sure they've know. got a plaque now, there. I've, yeah. I've been lucky enough to play all the Open Championship venues. Uh, some I like better than others. Um, I, I thought you were going to say from all the bad spots where the plaques are. I thought you were going to say <laughs> so, that. So, so in every plaque, I'm really pushed where any, any good shots ever been hit. I've hit every plaque, Connor, every single one well, of them. Well, I've hit every bunker at St. Andrews, I can tell you that. <laughs> Even oh, wow. those that you don't know where they are. But uh, yeah, I found those on occasion. Uh, but they're great courses to play. But, but Lynx golf is, Proper golf. I think, the purest form of golf to play. Proper golf. And that's why I think yeah. it's so special. Absolutely. There'll be no island par threes, no great water carries, none of that sort of is. It's proper golf. That's right. See this week. That's right. The that's ball, proper golf. That's, that, and I think as Eamon Lynch said in his little video piece last week for Golf Week, it's proper golf because the real interest starts once the ball gets on the ground. That's when that, it gets yeah, interesting. That's right. It starts to move. That's, that's right. Like, right. Where's this going? That's exactly right. So that's fantastic. It. Yeah. Tony, we could keep you here all day, but we better not. Connor, have you got a couple, one or two that you need to finish up with quickly? But we've been going longer than we thought we have. No, <laughs> I apologize. I think I'm for good. That. No, 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 Tony. If we, if we trust me, we're, there's three ramblers on this right now. Ron's <laughs> the worst one of them. He's been the best of us today. <laughs> um, no, I think we got a lot of it. I think um, let's go into that. The, we have the viewer question. 
Do you want to uh, go yes. there? Yes. Uh, listen to question. Let me just get my glasses. And uh, I'm not a huge fan of this question, but it's a, it's one that people ask us, the gentleman. Is Tom Watson the best open championship player in history, Tony? Discuss. I'll, I'll give you another hour and a half to uh, to give your thoughts on that, and then, <laughs> then we'll pull you up. <laughs> we, we, we might could take that, actually. Uh, I think he is a great links golf player. I think he is a, a great tournament winner, winning it five times. Should have been six, but five times. Six, yeah. uh, <laughs> but but then you've got Peter Thompson, Australian. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, won I it mean, five it. times. Uh, but he dominated there for a period of time. Uh, and, of course, again, Harry Varden, six-time winner. But I think, uh, you know, if we look down straight toe-to-toe, uh, young Tom Morris, to me, has to, has to take it four times in a row. Uh, sure. Wins by big margins, 11 strokes one time, 12 strokes one time. Was his dad won by thirteen in eighteen sixty? Yeah, that's true. First hole in one, though, right? First hole in one in the major, and yeah. first eagle on the first yeah. hole, five hundred, yep. five hundred seventy-eight yards, playing hickory and a gutty. Wow. He eagles it. <laughs> wow, uh, yeah. that's you know that that's that's impressive. That, is that was in eighteen seventy, by the yeah. way. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, but I, I think head to head, young Tom Morris to me would be the greatest open championship player in the world that was in from, history. Uh, from Javier Pintos. Uh, so Javier, I think. And for you at home. Wrong Tom. Wait, Barry, I was just going to say, Rod, I was going to say, for you at home, the sad story of young Tom Morris needs to be told or you need to uh, either buy a, a Stephen Proctor's book or um, help me out. What's the other book uh, with uh, Morris? Tommy's Arner. Uh, Tommy's Arner, thank you. Uh, and read that story it's a unfortunate story. He wins four opens in a it row. Is. He wins the the he wins his third one at nineteen. His first one at seventeen. Youngest uh, major championship winner of all time, and dies at the age of twenty four. Yeah, it's one of the he, he, baddest stories of golf. Yeah, he played his first one at age fourteen. By the way, yeah, it would have came in second if it wasn't the junior tournament. Isn't that correct? Well, he he withdrew because he had two two bad rounds. Uh, yeah. I think he shot a fifty-seven and a sixty, something like that, and withdrew. Well, what's interesting is after. Well, we whole another story. We we won't take any more time. <laughs> well, but I've got. Uh, well, we'll have you back. It. It's fine. It's, it's not going to be your last appearance, Tony. You've certainly uh, you've booked yourself another appearance, another couple of appearances at least. So yes, well, we'll, we'll I, I hope so. I hope, I hope it's been a little. Well, we'll pick uh, some specific topics and we'll do some deep dives on them. But uh, it's been terrific to have you along today. So I will say. Tony, thank you. It has been fantastic to have you today, and I'm really looking forward to having you back next time already, and I'm sure we'll get a bunch of listener questions before the next one, but really appreciate that. <laughs> thank you, mate. That sounds good. All right, man. Take Perfect. care. And Connor, always From great my to part, catch up. I just want to say, yeah, I just want to say on my part, Dr. Tony Parker might be a witch doctor because I don't even feel the pain in my back because of all the endorphins <laughs> from this conversation. So thank you. Thank and I mean that. I wholeheartedly mean it. Fantastic. They're coming Thank with a vengeance. Thank you so much, Tony. Connor. It really means a lot to me. Yeah, don't get used to it. Okay, no problem. Terrific. That's right. Really enjoyed it. Thank you, Connor. And that's episode 14 in the Books Talking Golf History podcast. We'll be back to do it again in a couple of weeks' time. But in the meantime, we've got one of Connor's uh, single-voice narratives coming up next week, which I need to get on with editing. So I'll go and do that. And we look forward to your company again next time here on Talking Golf History Podcast. <laughs>